I'm Jonathan Bastian, and this is KCRW's Life Examined, a show about science, philosophy, faith, and finding meaning in the modern-day world. This week, have you ever thought about taking a pilgrimage? I talk with author and New York Times columnist Timothy Egan about his adventures walking the Via Francigena and his discoveries about his own faith. No matter where you are in the faith perspective, from atheist to devout, you are a spiritual being. We are spiritual beings. We have this ability to think beyond the immediate. And, and that's what a pilgrimage is so good for, is just forcing that out. Later on, perspectives on why this kind of spiritual journey is as important today as it was hundreds of years ago from a Buddhist scholar and a nun. Pilgrimage isn't a journey into knowledge, but maybe into humility and into being more aware of what we don't know and can never know. Exploring the inner and outer journey, all ahead on KCRW's Life Examined. I want to start today by welcoming our listeners back to a show that might be familiar to some, but with a new name. Earlier this summer, I hosted a six-part series called Foxhole. As we were all hunkered down together, the show explored some big existential questions about living in a pandemic. After a great response from listeners, we realized that questions about science, philosophy, and faith are relevant always. So we're back now with Life Examined, and we hope you enjoy the show moving forward. To start our journey, we're exploring what it means to take a pilgrimage. History and literature are full of stories of the journey, from Homer's Odyssey to the Book of Exodus. Religious pilgrimages, as we know them now, started in medieval times. But what does the word actually mean? Do you have to be a believer or a Christian to walk the pilgrim's trail? Is there a purpose to the long hours of walking? Author and New York Times columnist Timothy Egan wanted to find out. So he walked from Canterbury, England to Rome, Italy. The journey became a book called Pilgrimage to Eternity. Questions of faith and family, work and life are all taken up over the months and months he walked the trail. Well, Timothy Egan, thanks for joining us on KCRW. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, Timothy, tell us what was going on in your life uh, such that you wanted to make this pilgrimage from England to Rome. What, What was going on? Yeah, there were a couple of things, and thanks for asking. You know, first of all, most people know about the Camino de Santiago, which is the best known pilgrimage in Europe, the one that goes through Spain. This is a lesser known, but, you know, in many ways more fascinating, certainly more scenic, um, more historically resonant, called the Via Francigena, which goes 1,100 miles from Canterbury in England, crosses the English Channel, goes through all of France, crosses the Swiss Alps goes down Italy, down through the spine of Italy, and settles in Rome, the Via Francigena, which was once the most used uh, pilgrimage in the medieval ages. I mean, a million people a year took it, and it sort of fell into the mists of time. And now it's being rediscovered by people like myself and a lot of young people as well, who are, you know, may not be strongly, um, strong members of one faith or the other. I ran into an awful lot of people who were agnostic and you know, I have a line from the great Catholic philosopher Stephen Colbert, who says, a, an agnostic is just an atheist without balls. And, you know, I, I didn't like treading water. I, I'm a lapsed Catholic. Um, I came from a big Irish Catholic family. I went many, many years without thinking about some of these questions. And then my mother died, and it was very hard. She was a liberal, progressive Catholic Um but very devout. And on her deathbed, she just said to me, you know, I'm not feeling it. I, I have doubts. I don't know what's ahead. And that, that sort of got me thinking that, you know, we are all spiritual beings. And um, 
I'd let my spiritual side lapse. So I thought I would take off on this wonderful, enchanting, extraordinary trail um, and and try to do a couple of things. You know, push this self myself on a physical journey, try to understand the history of Christianity, its two thousand year history, and try to tell some of that. And then most importantly, try to examine my own lapsed faith such such as it was. Yeah, you have a you have a wonderful line and 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 uh, Mr. Colbert kind of gets at it, but but you you said you were looking quote for a a stiff shot of no BS spirituality, which I think, you know, gets to the gets to your point here, which is which is looking for something to hold on to. I mean, I can imagine, you know, watching your mother pass away must have been a powerful experience as she's looking for that, you know, that grounding in a spiritual practice. So clearly this was boiling up in you. Yeah, it really was. And it had come to a point where I just wasn't content to be treading water. And I didn't want to just go through the rest of my life, you know, in the in the sort of comfort, you know, the easy water of, of agnosticism. And so I tried to force the issue. And one of the things that happens on a pilgrimage, you know, you do 18 to 20 miles a day with a, my pack was about 22 pounds, which was about as much as I could do. Um, they, the pilgrims on the trail call it deep walking where you, I, I try, try to do, you know, it's the opposite of our, my own ADD world with all my devices and everything where I'm constantly checking news sites and updates and, and until this year, sports scores. Um, it's the absolute opposite of that, Jonathan. I would, I would try to consider a topic or two on a given day. I would try to consider sexuality. How did the Catholic church get so screwed up on sexuality and their view toward women and this, you know, pedophile crisis, which is gripping it today. Another day, I would try to consider miracles. You know, 80% of Americans believe in miracles. And this faith is grounded in miracles. You cannot believe in Christianity, which, by the way, is the world's largest faith with more than 3, million adher- 3 billion adherents, without believing in miracles. You know, the central miracle of, of Christ himself. So I would try to dial down on some of these things. And I got to say, it was it was... It was terrific beyond what I ever thought it would be. It was very, very good, very challenging. I mean, I don't have any black and white answers, but I did resolve some things. What's that process like of 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 setting out? I mean, the phone is away. Uh, you're not getting tweets. You're not getting the sports scores. I mean, this, I think for a lot of people, sounds so appealing now in, in the modern day world of connection. Um, I mean, what was it like your first few days as you kind of tried to settle into that deep walking? What was that experience like? I'm glad you mentioned that. The first two days were the absolute worst. The first week was the hardest because I had to throw my all my old rhythms out, which were really deeply ingrained to me. I mean, I write an opinion column for the New York Times. I'm a, I'm a news junkie. Um, I'm, I'm an obsessive about ideas and events. Um, I tend to be an extrovert. I tend to have ADD like a lot of people. So I had to be the opposite of all my normal rhythms. And one of the hardest things for me early on was uh, spending a night at a monastery. And um, if you walk the Via Francigena, the monasteries are open to any pilgrimage, any, excuse me, any pilgrim, you don't have to be of any faith. They're supposed to welcome anyone who's trying to make a legitimate pilgrimage. So I was in this place in France early on, probably a week into the pilgrimage, uh, sitting down to eat dinner with um, a dozen or so monks, Christian monks, who were ate this meal in absolute silence in this Harry Potter-like vaulted dining room food that they had grown themselves, wine that they had made themselves, which I got to add was was pretty decent vino being in France. And um, th- that's when I realized how hard this was. I mean, I had I had to not even talk. 
um, but was good because they would give you a subject that you would try to med- try to think about um, during that meal. But you know, you hear the slurps, the sounds of people consuming their food and their soup and everything. But uh, um, it was very difficult. It was very difficult. But gradually, I got into this rhythm, and for me, the peak of this experience—not not the pilgrimage itself, but trying to change—was in the high Alps. Um, at this 8,000-foot pass, which is the highest point. It's called Great St. Bernard Pass, Italy and Switzerland, the border there. It's really high up. It could snow any time of year. In fact, it snowed when I was there in late August. And I, after dinner, I was talking to this Catholic priest who you know, could have been a medical doctor who decided to become a priest, and he goes to this monastery every year. It's just full of pilgrims of all ages. And I said, what's the best advice you can give any pilgrim? And he, he looked at me and just said one word. He said, listen. And one of the things I realized about myself is I just don't listen enough. So that was another thing that was very difficult and what I tried to work on. Isn't it interesting? I mean, what seems like one of the hardest things these days is is quieting our minds and just listening. Not even knowing what we're supposed to be listening for, but listening. It sounds kind of like that's what you're getting at here. This priest had a funny line. He said, uh, now, now they call it mindfulness. But, you know, it's been a thing that pilgrims of all faiths have tried to do for centuries is to quiet the, 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 the cluttered mind and, and try to just be present and try to look at this earth and to look at some of the philosophy that guides us. You know, again, I can't stress enough, Jonathan, that, that no matter where you are in the faith perspective, from atheist to devout, you are a spiritual being. We are spiritual beings. We have this ability to think beyond the immediate and, and that's what a pilgrimage is so good for, is just forcing that out. And along the way here, I mean, your book, I think, is both an internal journey, uh, but it's also a historical journey as you kind of move backwards through Christianity. And you write, for example, at one point in the book, you say, here's my problem. The deeper you unravel the layers of faith, the more trouble you find. That line really stuck out to me in the book because you're not scared in this to to remind us that there's a pretty bloody and dark part of Christianity, which is the kind of faith that you grew up in. Yeah, and you know what? This has been one of the surprises for me with this book. I thought that these um, my conclusions about about institutional faith and the history of Christianity would would offend a lot of devout Christians, and it turned out it hasn't offended most devout Christians. People have told me that they struggle with that history itself. So I, I try to do three things in this book. One was to, to complete the physical journey and convey what that's like. You know, just the walking and the air and the places you go to and the towns you visit and the people you meet and the other pilgrims you stumble upon. And number two, we just spoke of that. I tried to dial down my own spirituality. And then the third thing was you just touched on was that the history of Christianity itself. And I'll tell you, you know, it, it starts off amazingly. I mean, here is a faith, 50 years after Christ had been executed, they had barely 2,000 Christians in the entire world, according to the Roman Empire's census. It is now, as I said, the world's largest faith, which let me correct my earlier number, it's 2.3 billion people who consider themselves Christian. So the question becomes, how did this struggling spiritual startup become the world's greatest religion, or the world's most popular, I should say. Well, my conclusion was the early centuries of Christianity are extraordinary. It was a, it was a religion of love and, you know, radical philosophy of helping the least among you and, you know, the, the living uh, as you can 
with the poor and the downtrodden and trying to understand other people's sufferings and understandings. They allowed women to be ministers. It wasn't institutionalized. It didn't have all this dogma. Then in the year 312, the Emperor Constantine decriminalizes Christianity. Remember, it had been, it, they'd had other faiths, but it was, it was against the law to be a Christian in the Roman Empire, although he certainly didn't execute as many people as mythology would have it. That was fine. All religions were then open, you know, freedom to worship the God you want. But shortly thereafter, after Constantine did it, they made it the state religion of the Roman Empire. And shortly after that, they started killing people of other faiths. So my conclusion was their cardinal sin, if you want to use the term, the great error was the linking of church to state. And then you go to the medieval ages and you have these bloody, horrible wars, Christian on Christian, you know, the supposed Prince of Peace. I was blown away by the fact that 15% of the population of France and 20% of the population of Germany died in Christian-on-Christian clashes in the late Middle Ages. And if you did that percentage out today in the United States, you'd have 48 million deaths or more. So that history is not good. That history does not bode well. or That history does not give me confidence in the institution of religion. And yet, here you are looking for something in it. I mean, and I think what, you know, what I heard you say there, too, is that at its heart, in those beginning, in the beginning of the movement, there is something that's deeply beautiful that, that obviously seems to resonate with you. Correct. Not only something that's deeply beautiful in the beginning, but deeply beautiful in the present. I saw incredible acts of charity and faith by people trying to live by the simple words of the gospel. Um, I talk early on in the book about Calais, where these poor Muslim refugees are hiding from the cops and living in the shadows, and all they want to do is get somewhere. They're fleeing wars in Afghanistan, and ISIS was still active, so they were fleeing that. They were fleeing, actually, the old you know, biblical places in, um, in Syria and Iraq that used to be so prominent. And, you know, the cops were rousing them. The state was arresting them. People were ignoring them, spraying them. And who was trying to minister to them? Who was trying to give them food and showers and clean them up and make sure that, that little children, because a, a third of those refugees were children without adults, they were these, you know, Catholic volunteer organizations trying to live by the tenets of their faith. And the same thing, I'm really impressed by Pope Francis, who you know, is the first pope to take the name of Francis of Assisi, the sort of nature uh, pope and nature saint, I should say, I'm sorry. And and um, those things in the present don't allow me to just throw away the church entirely. I mean, that's what I was trying to be open toward. That's I was trying to say, you know, there's a, there's a philosophical core here that is not only attractive, but it's very powerful. It's, it's human beings that have made it bad. And, you know, I, I'm so impressed to hear you say that because there's there's a section in, in your book where you talk about a, a priest in your local town who um, who eventually it became known that he sexually assaulted a number of young boys, uh, one of which you knew uh, who committed suicide. And I mean, th- this story, of course, of pedophilia is widely known, but you have this close connection to it. And I thought... As I was reading this book, once I read that, I thought, "How could you even? How could you even go through with this?" Um, I know you mentioned your brother who uh, just just gave up on faith. So, uh, I mean, I think that's a kind of important component of the story here. 
that's one of the reasons why I gave up on the Catholic Church was because right now they have an existential crisis, uh, which is you know sexual abuse among among the clerical class, and um, I compare it to the Reformation of five hundred years ago when Martin Luther broke the church wide open over all the corruptions they had, where they were basically selling indulgences. You could get into heaven if you sent X amount of money or gave X amount of money to a certain person. Similarly, the crisis today is 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 the one that's dragging this church down. Now, beyond the intellectual discussion of it, it nearly destroyed my family. Uh, we had seven kids in my family. We were Irish Catholic. And we were fairly devout, raised by devout, progressive Catholics. And I was educated by Jesuits who were intelligent men with PhDs, most of them of the liberal persuasion as well. And then this horrible monster came into our neighborhood, came over to our house, lived across the street. We were across the street from the church and tried to molest my brother, um, did molest some of my brother's friends. And one of those friends uh, threw himself in front of a train. And after that happened, I said, I will never forgive these bastards. You know, I, and I said to my mom, how can you still worship in this church when they, when they allowed this sort of organized crime to go on? My mother kept her faith. Maybe not as she exited, but she tried to keep her faith. I did not. But then as I started this pilgrimage, I vowed to start fresh. The question for me was, could I forgive them as so many you know, lapsed Catholics have been forced to try to do for this great overarching sin of, of priestly pedophilia and what they'd done to my family? And what won me over, I don't want to spoil the ending, but what won me over was the big open-heartedness uh, of Pope Francis, who was begged for forgiveness for this thing. And listening to him and listening to um, uh, victims of pedophilia who've you know met with the Pope um, was a big part of my being able to have some closure on this issue. You know, it's funny because I, I could see you also, you know, getting pulled in different directions, for example, like saying, you know what, I'm going to become I'm going to become a Buddhist or I'm going to become something else. I mean, there's a lot of other directions, but but something in you wanted to stay, uh, stay associated with this with this church that you had known for so long, I guess. That's true. And it has to do with one thing. I was on the Christian pilgrimage trail. <laughs> you know, I wasn't on the Buddhist trail. I wasn't on the, you know, one of the trails of the other faiths. I was, every night I spent, or every day after, you know, some great adventure, I bedded down in some town where some extraordinary miracle happened or, you know, some major event in the history of Christianity happened. And, you know, the the rocks themselves, the the stones of the streets are seem to be just alive with memory um, of this faith. And so you couldn't help but to be moved by how much, you know, historic Christianity was all around you. And that's why, I, you know, I tried to focus on that. One more thing on this regard, which a, a lot people who are a lot smarter than I told me to do, is to read the great philosophers, that many, many people before me have, have looked at these questions of existence and spirituality and have written about it and wrestled with it. So I read, you know, everyone from Oscar Wilde, the great Irish Catholic, not Catholic, he was the great Irish poet uh, who did pri who did prison time for the, quote, crime of being gay, the uh, love of another man, who in the last three years of his life after he was released from prison, you know, visited the Pope 40 times and wrestled with this question. So I read his stuff. I read Augustine's struggles. I read... Um, 
uh, Christopher Hitchens, who wrote a great book about atheism. So I could sort of, you know, have a back and forth conversation with, um, I could mull around in my mind the people who have struggled with this before me. You know, another thing I loved about this book was how you brought in members of your family. Um, at one point, your your daughter joins you, your wife uh, joins you at the end, and there's a section where your son joins you, and and I, it really touched me because um, you're bringing these questions up with them about faith, about skepticism, and and I was wondering if you could read us a short section from the book where you kind of talk about how it is we raise children. Um, you know, when when you're agnostic, when you're not sure what to believe. Could you read us a little bit about that? Sure, I'd be happy to. You know, the just a little bit of background is that um, my wife is Jewish and I'm a lapsed Irish Catholic. So, you know, we didn't really have one single faith tradition. We, you know, would go to mass once a year and we would go to temple once a year and we would celebrate Passover and Christmas. But we didn't really dial down on some of these bigger questions. So my son joined me first, and he's an agnostic. And then my daughter joined me, and I guess she's a little more spiritual. Um, they're they're both. I wouldn't say they're they're in one camp or the other, but they're open minded. So here's here's what we said. I was talking about the the back and forth with my son, who said, you know, religion's all fable, and they're all hypocrites. And I said, yes, it's fable, but what a story. It's poetic. It's universal. So we had this argument while he was growing up. His view is more nuanced now, and I'm trying to open him up even more with a gateway brief on behalf of Pope Francis. We didn't raise our kids to be Catholic or even Christian. Maybe this is a reaction to the detached binary tutorials of my parish priest, Father Schwemann. And after what happened to my brother and his friends, I stopped caring about whether one religion had a monopoly on morality. Why set our kids up for the inevitable letdown? But now... They have no idea why people genuflect at a certain time in church or why people put ashes on their forehead on a late winter day or why an Orthodox Jew wears a yarmulke. Our plan was to give them the basis of the major religions, the mythology, the philosophy, and as many of the verifiable facts as possible and let the free market of ideas settle the debate as they thought it. They have a reasonable person's skepticism toward the supernatural claims of religion. They can spot the cons masquerading as holy men and women of faith, but they lack literacy in the spiritual canon. And how can you understand the world, as the Archbishop of Canterbury had said, without understanding religion? It's one of my great regrets as a parent. We didn't want to close the door on spiritual curiosity. Our kids should be open enough to allow themselves to be surprised as Francis said, and not foreclose on the idea that a great faith, though flawed, can contain great truths. Uh, thank you for reading that. I mean, I think that gets at so much there. And I don't know. I mean, as you read that now and you reflect on it, what comes up for you? What, what sticks out in there? Well, what, what I feel even stronger about is this lack of spiritual literacy that, you know, you should be able to understand the references, at least sort of basic biblical references in the, of the major faiths uh, in the same way that we teach people to understand how different governments work and where different cultures come from. And um, I really regret that, that we shied away from that. And um, if I could do it all over, I probably would have been, um, 
And then my wife feels the same way. I think we probably would have been a little more aggressive in just in trying to make sure they are exposed to the faiths and to spirituality, not to try to see it as a, as a fraud or try to understand what drives so many people of faith, good people of faith. Well, I wonder, I mean, do you think it's important to be a spiritual person? What, what, what's the essence of it? Why is it so important? I feel like I have a, a hollowed out life. I feel like I have a weaker life. I feel like I'm only living one dimension instead of two if I don't have a spiritual side that I cultivate. Um, and most of my friends feel the same way. I've had a lot of conversations with folks after this book came out. People said, you know, I haven't been able to talk about this because religion gets stuck in these idiotic conversations we have. They get stuck in our politics. It gets stuck in, you know, the the news of the day about a particular faith. If you go beyond those things and try to look at some basic universal questions of you know existence and what we have, um, I feel, and most of my friends now feel the same way in these discussions that that you're a lesser person, not a, not a lesser meaning you're you're you know a lesser person that you've let your own self down if you don't cultivate your spiritual side. And, and you know you just again you're you, it's sort of hollow. I think it's. It's important to let these other dimensions uh, breathe a little bit. So, I mean, as you as you think about where you were before the book and after the book, where 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 has it taken you spiritually? I'm reluctant to tell you my conclusion because I think the important thing of this book is to have a reader see how I arrived at the conclusion. But I will say I'm a lot stronger. I, I am not an agnostic, and I'm a lot stronger in my broad belief in um, some things that we don't understand. Now, that's not to say I'm an institutional Catholic or, my, or any of those things, but it is to say that I moved from the skeptic's easy perch to the much more difficult um, understanding of, or trying to understand of the spiritual dimensions of life. Yeah, and, and finally, it, it just sounds like it took the pilgrimage and it took using the physical body to really get you to this new place. You can't just do it by reading. You can't just do it by meditating, you know, in a, in a beautiful place in, out in nature or in a church. I mean, I think the movement towards something every day is a very big deal. And that's why pilgrimages are an ancient thing. I mean, I didn't make it up. They go back, you know, 2,000, several thousand years, 4 million people a year try to go on some sort of pilgrimage. Moving towards something physically is yeah. the best way to move sort towards something spiritually, I think. Well, Timothy Egan, uh, we really appreciate the conversation. Um, thanks for joining us on KCRW. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it as well. This is Life Examined on KCRW. I'm Jonathan Bastian. We'll continue with our theme of pilgrimage this week. While Timothy Egan's journey ended up being deeply rooted in questions of Catholicism, we're now going to hear from two spiritual writers who have an expansive notion of what a pilgrimage can be. And as we'll learn in a minute, one interpretation might mean not even leaving your house. Vrashaprana is a Hindu nun in the Vedanta order. She's the author of a number of books and has spoken globally on meditation and Eastern philosophy. She currently lives in the Vedanta Society of Southern California's Sarada Convent. Thanks for joining us. Great, great to be here again, Jonathan. And author Pico Iyer has written books about the Dalai Lama, about how to approach the end of life with grace, and most recently, about how to embrace silence and solitude. 
He lives in Japan and Santa Barbara. Pico, welcome. I'm really delighted to be here. Thank you, Jonathan. Well, Pico, I want to start by reflecting on that conversation with Timothy Egan. Um, you, of course, are no stranger to pilgrimage. Um, so I wonder, as you were listening to that conversation, what, what stuck out to you? One of the things I cherished about what Timothy was saying was that pilgrimage offered him and most of us a way to step out of the moment. And he was talking about how he's ADD as an opinion columnist for the New York Times, multitasking, doing a thousand things at once. And I think something inside us is crying out for simplicity, for purpose, for clarity, and for living at a human pace. And the sense in which walking the pilgrimage through Italy, as he did, brought him back into himself, freed the clutter from his head, and reminded him of what is really important. And just the one other thing I loved from your conversation with him was the sense he gave very movingly that pilgrimage isn't a journey into knowledge, but maybe into humility and into being more aware of what we don't know and can never know, and just the mystery before which we have to bow. Mm. Yeah, Vraja Prana, what, what, what were your thoughts on the interview? Was it anything similar to what Pico said? Of course, as usual, on the same page as Pico, that, that, that real need that every human being has to just stop the mind from chattering. And the wonderful word that came up when, when Egan was asked, when Egan asked, uh, what, what do you recommend? What's your advice? And the one word advice he got was listen. And I thought, bravo, that's it. That is it. It's not about the mind chattering. It's not about looking outside. It's about really listening. What, there are prompts from the outside, but the real message comes from within. That real message comes from within. And the, the deeper we go into that inner journey, the more that we can get out of that outer journey. And his ability to really do that and listen was really very moving to get beyond all the intellectual stuff that we tend to get stuck in because the mind is so small. It doesn't really encompass uh, what Pico lovingly called the great mystery unto which we bow. I loved what you were just saying because as I heard him talk about listening, I realized it was listening to that voice within. I mean, the first important thing is to listen to the people around us, but we all have the wisdom within us, but we're running away from it or running in, in the wrong direction. I'm always struck how people more and more these days talk about cutting through the noise, and that's so that we can be filled with something much more sustaining. Yes, and that's what, what I really appreciate about Egan, whose, whose columns I've read a number of times in, in the New York Times, but then I thought, how great for him to kind of step back and have um, a very human experience of having your mother die. It's like, oh... And that's a, it's an eviscerating experience, no matter how smart you are, no matter how so-called spiritually advanced you are. It's a very difficult time. Things are sort of stripped away that you didn't even know that you had that you're being stripped of. And so that kind of prompts the journey, and he was had the courage to make that both um, an outer voyage and then an inner voyage too. The ability to look more deeply within, explore the roots of where, where his own journey is coming from, and also m- making, realizing that, oh, I wish I'd done things differently, what can I do now? And I think Pico's quite right, is that when we're people are, pilgrimage is sort of that last gasp for what we're doing, it's like it's a, it's a spiritual yearning, which we have, but we don't know where to go because we don't even have like the knives, fork, and spoons to do that with because we don't know enough. 
I think that longing, that yearning is there. It's so deeply etched in the human heart. Our, our mutual friend Houston Smith would often say there's a God-shaped hole in the human heart. And we're, we're trying to fill it with the noise from outside. And that's just like eating junk food. And it doesn't satisfy us. It makes us do really stupid things that we regret later instead of going deeper within. So, so many things to talk about here. Yeah. Well, you know, just, just to continue this thread here, uh, Pico, you know, one thing that I, I've heard you say is that a pilgrimage is one of our deepest longings in the secular age, which I find is really interesting because I'm sure a number of people listening maybe think of themselves as, as living mostly in a secular world. Can a pilgrim take a pilgrimage in a secular world? I think that's as rich a, a, as pilgrimage as any, partly because pilgrimage is just for me a journey towards whatever is deep, deepest inside you which maybe, for many people, would say, what is beyond you. You know, when Romeo and Juliet first meet at the ball, they speak in a sonnet to one another, and the central word in that sonnet is pilgrim. Uh, Romeo says, my lips, these blushing pilgrims, and Juliet says, good pilgrim, you do wrong your hands too much. But it's a way of suggesting each has found his or her spiritual destiny or source. And by meeting each other, they're meeting something essential within themselves. And so I don't think it's so important to put a name to it or even feel that there are texts around it. All of us have some longing that there's something uh, forgotten or um, undiscovered within ourselves that that we want to release. And I think in some ways um, that that longing is stronger than ever because we are the junk food that Vajrapana was remembering and mentioning, that we're filled more and more um, with the wrong kind of distraction. And when you ask about secular pilgrimage, of course I'm amused that here you're talking to a lifelong Santa Barbaran who has been a very committed Hindu nun for almost half a century and a Hindu guy who doesn't know anything about his tradition or Hinduism or the source, but who travels the world to observe the pilgrimages of the Ethiopian Orthodox faith and, and Buddhist and, and uh, Muslims. So I think even those who are spiritually unaffiliated get something just from making that resolve. I want to find out what means most to me, whatever terms or no terms I choose to put on it. That That is so beautiful, Pico, and um, it rings so true. I, I love to travel myself, as you know. So um, I've gone on a couple of tours, which I've enjoyed immensely. And what strikes me is the peop- there's so many people in the United States right now, and, and certainly in developed countries, who love to go out and, d- and discover new countries. But really, I think they have, they're just discovering themselves, too. What what does this awaken in me? What does this bring to me? You see the lights turn on people's eyes. It's just, uh, I had such an amazing time in Turkey. Just with, with most of them were very committed sort of Christians from the Midwest. And going into some of these um, these sacred sites of Islam, you see them just looking at it with new eyes and finding something within themselves, some touch of holiness that is awakened within them, and you see it expressed all through them. It's really a glorious thing to see. So I think we're all seeking, but we do it under the, the guise of tourism. And, you know, Rajaprana, you know, I also hear you say that sometimes you go into a pilgrimage thinking you're going to get one thing out of it, but oftentimes you get something that's very different. Yes, and it's the least thing that you wanted, and it's the thing that you least expected, and that's exactly what you should have gotten. When I went to India for the first time, I didn't particularly want to go to India. 
I was really much more interested in the trip. We were going via Europe, so I was much more interested in the two weeks of France that we spent first, which was much more to my liking, and I spoke the language, and I had much more interest in European history and culture, blah, blah. And then, oh, well, I've got a trip to India. I'm going to do this pilgrimage, so here we go. And I, when, with a, when we started coming into Calcutta, I thought to myself, you're going to the worst place on earth. Get prepared. You'll see things that you're not prepared for. Um, just bear it. You know, this is how people leave here. You have to face it. And when I got there, I, I was like, oh, this is great. This is great. I, for, for some unknown reason, I felt completely at home. I, I would walk around at night being very happy and feeling quite satisfied. The only thing I really had wanted to do was go to the Himalayas. So when it turned out that we had to leave our headquarters right outside Calcutta and to go to um, Brindaban, which is the place where Krishna was, I rebelled with every bone in my body. I complained. I wheedled. I snarled. I was in the worst mood possible. They put us on the wrong train. So we ended up being um, in 110 degree heat for like some like 18 hours with all oh it was horrible it was it was just a ghastly experience and then i get there and the the water is as brown as the dirt it's unbearably hot and we left this beautiful place in india this beautiful place and i went down and i thought this is the worst place on earth and how the hell did i ever get here i was grumping and carrying on and it ended up I just went, I was truly transported against my will, against my very will. I saw this old man being wheeled around in a wheelchair around a temple. And I, I saw this sort of like light coming out. So I thought there's so much dust in this place that my eyes are going bad. So I kept rubbing my eyes, rubbing my eyes, putting water in. And then I realized that it wasn't the dust. There was actually light emitting from this 90-year-old sadhu who I later discovered was considered one of the great saints. And just being with him was the, was a, such an enormous pilgrimage for me, just sitting in the same room with him. When, uh, when we had to leave, I was weeping uncontrollably. And when we got to the Himalayas, I was so sick I couldn't leave my room. I never was able to get out of my room. I was stuck <laughs> crawling to the bathroom for three days. That was my trip to the Amalias. That was the pilgrimage I needed. Pico, I, 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 I have to think you have a number of experiences of pilgrimage that maybe speak to something similar, something unexpected in the journey that you didn't know was coming. Embarrassingly similar. Um, so at the age of 29, I left my comfortable job in Midtown Manhattan uh, to go and live for a year in a temple on the back streets of Kyoto. And my high-minded year in the temple lasted exactly a week. I met my wife instead, and nothing went uh, as according to plan. I came back here, because life always has better plans for us than we have for ourselves. And I came back to Santa Barbara, and lo and behold, I found exactly the place that's been waiting for me, just a three-hour drive up the road from my mother's house in Big Sur in a Benedictine hermitage. And as soon as I got there, as Vajapana was saying about India, I felt I'd come home. I felt the sense of recognition. I felt, you know, here's a, a kind of life partner who's been waiting for me. 
And now, 32 years after I, I arrived in Japan, which is where I spend the rest of my life, actually my wife and I live very much the monastic life I first imagined when I sought that out in my 20s. But in my 20s, uh, I, I was just hostage to illusions and romantic notions, and I didn't really know what I was doing, though some intuition pointed me in that direction, and it took me you know, 15 years maybe to, to begin to find my way back to the place uh, I thought I had been seeking. But I always feel you can't second-guess the divine, and that really everything that's happened to me in my life, good or bad, has absolutely come out of the blue, which again, as Rajaprana was saying at the beginning, puts all our thoughts and our worries into place. Nothing I've worried about has happened, but all kinds of things I never would have expected do. And when when Rajapana was just talking about all that was happening in the city of filth, I was thinking about when I'd been to the holy city of Hinduism, Varanasi. And it really reminds me how pilgrimage gives you um, a different lexicon and a different way of seeing, as well as a different way of being. It's as if all your values and words are overturned. So Varanasi is famous as pretty much the dirtiest place in India. Also, it's the holiest. And as you're walking through the narrow passageways of the old city, the main thing that's happening is groups of people racing past, carrying dead or dying bodies on biers to be burned beside the Ganges and for people to take their last gasp next to the holy river. And what always strikes me there, among other things, is that Varanasi's old title, I gather, is Kashi, City of Light. So the city of death is actually the city of light. And the city of death, in the case of Varanasi and other pilgrimage places, is a city of celebration. Really, what you're getting as you walk amidst those dead bodies and the people who are actually gathering their ashes is praise to God, thanksgiving, gratitude that they've been able to come to this holy place and maybe achieve moksha, liberation. And it's interesting to me also how certain places, just like certain people, have charisma. And so when, when you go to Varanasi and you're surrounded by the very intense rites of Hinduism, you're reminded that the Buddha um, delivered his first discourse six miles away, uh, that the Japanese yeah. Catholic uh, novelist Yusaku Endo sends five lost Japanese there. And there are certain places, and this is where physical movement does have a value, that feel like the, the sadhu or the wise person that Vrajapana met. Those places are old, and you just feel blessed to be in their presence, and you feel... They have answers to questions you even haven't even formulated, or they can pass something on to you that will send you back home a, a different person. And in that sense, again, it speaks to secular pilgrimage. I'm not a practicing Hindu, but by going to the holy city of Hinduism, I came back home with a much richer sense of, of being blessed, I suppose. What you say about Varanasi is so true. I hadn't particularly wanted to go there. Um, and despite myself, when I was there, it's uh, the the power of the place just affects the way that you perceive things. And it also strikes me, I was really ill when I was there. I had amoebic hepatitis and was confined to bed a lot of the time. But the, what the images you take in, what you hear, what you think about, actually when you're well enough and you're back home, there's a way that you have a second pilgrimage, an inner pilgrimage, where you sort of chew the cud of what you saw, what you took in, what you remembered. And then you get a, a different understanding, you get a different pilgrimage from what you took in there. And it can really change the direction of your life. And it, and it does. And that's the real pilgrimage, I'm guessing, that the, really the physical movement is just a means to the end of being moved and, and transformed. Yes. Transformation is always the goal. Because I think nobody in their right mind is saying, 
things are really great just as they are. Just perfect this second. It's like, well, maybe I'd like to tweak that. Maybe, you know, you look deeper inside. You know, I really wish I could work on this thing. That's when you have the opportunity to make that deeper inner pilgrimage and to, to find what all of us have within ourselves. But we're either too busy, too tired, or maybe too afraid to look. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think of a lot of our listeners now, too, who we had thought at this point we would kind of emerge from the coronavirus. And I wonder to you, Pico, can we take a pilgrimage without leaving our house? Is that something that's possible? Hallelujah. I was just going to say, that yes, the ultimate pilgrimage is that inner one that Vajaprana was describing, sitting still. So now my physical pilgrimage is usually driving three hours up the coast to uh, my Benedictine hermitage, but precisely to go nowhere, precisely to be able to sit in the quiet, instructed by silence, no cell phone, no um, television, no internet connection. And that's when I go along the greatest adventure of all. And for those of us who can't even go three hours away from home, um, when you step into a, a temple in Kyoto, some of them have inscribed beneath your feet at the entrance, look beneath your feet. In other words, paradise is right here. Uh, as Emily Dickens said, he, she who hasn't found paradise below is never going to find it above. You don't, tra Emerson, you know, travel is a fool's paradise if you think you can find anything outside yourself that isn't inside yourself already. So really, I think that the ultimate pilgrimage is being where you are and freeing yourself from distraction principally so that you can uncover the inner universe uh, that's within you and that so often we forget or run away from. And if people really think that they need to go outside to take a pilgrimage, be with a tree. Be outside. I'm, I'm spending a great amount of time in, in the garden now, just puttering around and, and growing flowers and spending time outdoors, which I love anyway. But you just see that there's a whole universe that we are not tuned into. There are cathedrals in those trees. There are, there, there, the, the, I'm frustrated because I'm, I'm a, choral singer and I can't sing now except in my room but then you then you listen to the birds they're doing a much better job than we ever could there there are pilgrimages to be found everywhere and they're right with 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 all we have to do is open our eyes open our eyes and when that gets when we take enough in to understand a little more deeply then close them look more deeply within Pico, um, for for those that have not been on a pilgrimage, I, I wonder if there's any advice you might have for somebody like you who's traveled all over the world. Where where do you kind of where do the questions begin in your mind? My first piece of advice would be just what all three of us have been saying, which is leave all expectation behind. Assume you'll find what you didn't even know to look for. And go not to lecture to the world, but to listen, as we've been saying. Um, go as a supplicant, as a petitioner. Again, Timothy Egan was, I think, talking a little bit as an opinion columnist for the New York Times. The liberation of being anonymous, wearing simple robes, stepping in the same footsteps as people have been stepping for 800 years, being uh, just one little item in a, in a larger community. Um, all of that is, is liberation. But um, I think... As we've been saying, really, the destination matters much less than what you bring to it. And travel is only as useful as 
the extent to which you're ready to open your eyes. As Rajapana was talking, I scribbled down, pilgrimage is opening your eyes to what's around you. And then she said it in her next sentence. So she and I are basically the same voice coming out of <laughs> different skins and different genders. But um, I love, you know, I think of Thomas Merton as a great pilgrimage, the, the monk who lived for 27 years in his monastery in uh, Kentucky. And I think he said something like, in one sense, we're always traveling. But in another sense, we've already arrived. And the, the travel is only about finding the place where you've been all along, not to sound too kind of paradoxical about it. But uh, um, that's why, as, as Vajrapana was saying, for friends who say, I really want to go somewhere special and, and trans transporting, I would say, go to the other side of town, go to your backyard, look at the cathedral um, that's growing right next to your back window, take a walk down the street. And in this virus moment, um, I think that's what so many of us have been doing. I'm currently staying in the house that my parents have occupied for 53 years. And for the first time in those 53 years, I just walk up the road. And it's a revelation. It's, of course, one of the most beautiful landscapes on earth, being the hills of Santa Barbara. Um, but I'd never thought to look at it. And, it's, uh, and, you know, I was flying around the world to see all these other dramatic places. Paradise is in my backyard. Um, if only uh, I can turn my attention to it. And I think many people during this season have found unexpected blessings having to do with their family, their house, and what's around them all the time, which is just what we never choose to look at, mostly. Rajaprana, back to you here. Kind of the, the any ideas or, or or questions we bring with us to begin this idea of pilgrimage. Pico said so nicely before. It's like the first thing to put down is put away your expectations. So I think if we hold this idea of like I'm disappointed because I can't go there here this year. I can't see these people right now. I can't do that. It's like then we just make ourselves unhappy. Then we make ourselves unnecessarily frustrated. It's like what can I? What can I get from this moment? What can I learn from this moment? And there are so many blessings with just being quiet, just being forced. Even if we don't like the idea, it's like, okay, let's make, let's pretend this was my idea then, for people who don't like being told what to do. And then it's like, what can I discover that I didn't know about the world around me? What can I discover about myself that I didn't know? And what of all things in this world, if today was the last day on earth for me, what would I want to do? And, and I, for, I think we sometimes forget not to take us away from that beautiful sentence, but we forget that it's a choice we have. As Vajrapana was saying, any moment we can concentrate on what we do have, which is usually a source of gratitude and delight, or as she said, what we don't have. But it's up to us. Around me, where I live in Japan, there are lots of elderly people who walk the classic Shikoku pilgrimage, and they're all dressed in white, and on the back of them says more or less, um, I'm ready to die. Just as Vajrapana was saying, I think a pilgrim is somebody who lives as if he's going to die tonight, and therefore is pointing himself in the direction of what is most essential. And he's, he's, he or she is entertaining um, that question. And I was also thinking as I was listening to Vajrapana, people may think that pilgrimage is about going away from reality, but that's because we misunderstand reality. To me, pilgrimage is a trip into reality. And I never forget, um, after the terrible tsunami overturned all of Japan in 2011, uh, a friend of all three of us, I think the Dalai Lama, instantly came there. And again, and he said, I don't have much to offer to the people who've lost their homes and their loved ones, but I have to be there to share my presence. And again and again, he referred to that trip as his pilgrimage. And it's not a word I've heard him use often, but for him, a pilgrimage is a journey, actually in that case, into suffering, but certainly a journey 
into what is real and what's in the midst of the sort of human tangle. A pilgrimage can really be a pilgrimage into love. And that's what I see in His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. That we go towards what we love, no matter what. And that going into that deep heart of love, going towards that which feeds our soul, with the Dalai Lama, that enormous compassion. What else is that except love with a big L? Moving into love. Vrajaprana, thank you so much for, for your thoughts today. My great pleasure. My great pleasure. Thanks to both you and to dear Pico. Great being here today. And Pico Iyer, thank you again for your thoughts today. Thank you, Jonathan. You've done a wonderful thing to bring, bring me and Rajaprana together to have such a rich conversation after 45 years of always, you know, rushing past one another uh, on the freeway or wherever. Thank you. Well, that's all for today. You've been listening to Life Examined on KCRW. The show is produced by Andrea Brody with digital support from Jennifer Wolf. You can learn more about the show at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined and download the show wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jonathan Bastian, and we'll see you next week.